Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Thursday, November the 5th. Coming up, you'll find out how a Scarborough food bank is catering to the needs of its community through an unconventional but very familiar setup and restoring dignity in the process. But first, the world's first Parkinson's treatment is undergoing undergoing clinical trial right here in Toronto. Here to talk about it, Dr. Nir Lipsman is co-principal investigator and a neurosurgeon at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Let's start with what Parkinson's is and and who it actually affects. Sure. So Parkinson's disease is a uh, degenerative motor condition. So it's a common condition that predominantly mostly affects motor function. So it results over time in a slowing down of movements. And we see all a whole bunch of symptoms related to that where there's tremor, slowing down, increased falls, and over time you get other kinds of effects. And it's related to loss of an important chemical in the brain we call dopamine. Uh, so we know that uh, it can affect anybody. It generally affects affects uh, patients in their 50s and 60s for the first time and really affects people of all backgrounds uh, around the world. And the symptoms are different from each person that's affected, aren't they, at the, you know, at the outset? At the outset, it's fairly. Uh, it is. It is. It does vary, but it's fairly common. It requires uh, a, a neurologist to make the diagnosis, and commonly, patients experience a tremor that they experience at rest, and again, they get a kind of slowing down of movements, uh, trouble with walking, trouble with spinning around, trouble with getting up from a chair, and also they notice changes in their writing and in their facial expressions and in their voice, and all of these things are, are put together, and the diagnosis is made. Even though we don't. Don't have a blood test for it or a specific imaging marker for it. it, it it's what we call a clinical diagnosis. So uh, what you're talking about here, this first clinical uh, phase of clinical trials, this is a treatment. It's not a cure for Parkinson's, correct? Correct, uh, exactly. So we know that for patients with Parkinson's disease, when they see a neurologist, there are effective medications. So me- medical treatments are uh, are very good at addressing some of the, the troublesome symptoms of the disease. But no matter how well we treat the symptoms, we know that the medications over time become less and less effective and less and less tolerated as the disease goes on. So what we need to develop as a field is a way to stop that decline and stop that process from happening and not only treat the symptoms but actually slow down the disease. And those are the kinds of things we're interested in developing. Okay, and you're now. This is going to sound uh, probably very simplistic the way I'm going to describe this, but you're focusing um, on using ultrasound technology, and you deliver a treatment directly to the region yeah. of the brain that's affected. Basically, you're kind of without drilling a hole in the brain. You're opening up a passage so that uh, you you can uh, the communication can still happen to the yeah. brain. Correct. No, that, that's actually not simplifying at all. That's uh, better than I would have put it. Uh, that's exactly what we're doing. So, so the idea is that uh, there exists a very fine uh, protection in the brain uh, that's called the blood-brain barrier. And this is a physical barrier that exists like a kind of saran wrap that wraps all the blood vessels of our brain. And the idea is that that saran wrap, that, uh, that barrier, prevents things from getting into the brain where we want some things to get in. Now, that barrier is very important important because you don't want some things to get into the brain. You want that protection. But the flip side of that is that there may be 
very good treatments and promising treatments that just can't get access to the brain where you want them to go. So what we're doing with ultrasound and with focused ultrasound is we're able to aim these waves, these ultrasound waves, to precise parts of the brain and open a window, a temporary window in that blood-brain barrier so that whatever is circulating in the bloodstream, and in this case it's a medication that we want to get into the brain, can gain access to the brain that ordinarily wouldn't be able to get in. I am going to really please my producer, Chris Creston, who's a sci-fi uh, nerd. <laughs> it's sort of like a Stargate that you're opening. It's temporary. Yeah, you got it. That's, that's, uh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, do, we have, do we have to go in through the blood-brain barrier because of what they call plaques that happen? Are we seeing plaques developing in the brain blocking off pathways like, like we do in Alzheimer's with Parkinson's? We definitely see um, plaques and sort of abnormal proteins that clump up in the brain and that gum up a lot of the wiring in the brain in Parkinson's. Um, but that's not the only reason why, why this is a challenge. Now, overcoming that blood-brain barrier has been a major goal for doctors and, and surgeons for, for many, many years. And the way that we've done it so far has always required an operation. So a skin incision, holes in the skull, passing things through the brain, etc. But now we can achieve the same goal, we believe, without doing any of that. And with the patient in the MRI scanner, uh, with the ultrasound going directly through their skull. So it, it is uh, much less invasive, but I should say it's also very much in the early days. We are uh, conducting a phase one trial where the goal is really to show that we can do this safely and that we can do it effectively. How did you discover that ultrasound could open a window? So this is, you know, uh, this is the, the tip of the iceberg, what we're doing here. Uh, this, there's been uh, several decades of work. A lot of the work, uh, the pioneering work done here at Sunnybrook uh, and in Toronto and in Canada, uh, and it's been recognized for a very long time that ultrasound energy can be used to non-invasively go through the skull and influence the brain. And the work that, uh, that has shown that uh, we can do that to open the blood-brain barrier is actually pioneered by scientists uh, here who's working closely with us, Dr. Kalervo Hinnanen, who's one of the uh, pioneers of the field, happens to be at Sunnybrook as well. So this is phase one of clinical trials. You have to go through three, right? Exactly, exactly. So it's, a, it's the beginning of a long road, but it's a critical first step in that process. We have to show that something is safe. You have to show that you're doing what it is that you're claiming to be doing, and then the next step is going to be test this in more patients and really drill down on are we seeing the effect that we want to see in Parkinson's disease. I understand that your clinical trial has six people that will be involved in three rounds of treatment and yeah. follow-up will last for about six months. Why so small? Is that unusual? It's, you know, it's always a balance. It's a balance between what is practical and what we actually have funding to do. Uh, but we know that any time you investigate or are or, or looking into a new device in the brain, um, it's important to show that in anywhere between five and ten patients. And that, that's enough to show that it's safe, that what you're doing, and then you can justify going to a larger population. So it's a typical phase one trial for a new device that you're, that you're investigating. And how far along are these people that are in the trial? Are, are they with their Parkinson's? They're early in their disease. Uh, they have a, a sort of milder stages of the disease. They're not more advanced. And that's because it's still a procedure and it still involves a lot of visits. And we want patients to, to, to be able to remain in the trial. So they are still in the early, early stages. 
So what's the goal of the treatment? Do you, are you hoping to see uh, their their balance, their motor skills improve? What are you looking yeah. for as an end goal? A few things. So for, for the trial, we're looking for safety. We want to make sure that what we're doing is safe, that we don't cause any harm to the patients. Ultimately, we're also looking at influencing the symptoms of the disease and the, the, the evolution of the disease. So we want to see a slowing down of the disorder. And we also want to potentially see that we can influence what medications they're on. So we know that the longer that somebody is on Parkinson's medications, the less effective those medications become and the more side effects patients can get. So reducing those medications is also a goal. Yeah. So um, stepping away from pharmaceuticals as much as possible, which is a yeah. good thing. Yeah. Um, and, and could you, you mentioned a, that you uh, want to slow this disorder. Could you yeah. put a pause in the disorder? Is that is that something you're hoping for, that you could actually stop it? I think that's the the goal of the field uh, in general, for sure. I think that as a first goal, we want to slow it down. We want to. We, we know we have now decades of data and information on how Parkinson's develop, develops over time and what we can expect at year two, at year five, at year ten, etc. So we know that there's a decline that happens as the neurons, as the cells in the brain continue to to die with the disease. It's a neurodegenerative condition. So what we want to do is we want to change that trajectory. We want to change that slope uh, because so we want to delay uh, continuing uh, in more advanced stages of the disease. And that's really the goal. That's so far something has eluded a lot of the field. It does not exist really currently. And that's what we want to develop. Well, it's very interesting work you're doing. And I wish you the best of luck with your your study. Uh, someone very close to us in the Chorus family uh, has Parkinson's, does a podcast. His name is Larry Gifford, and he does a mm-hmm. podcast on a weekly basis of life with Parkinson's. Uh, and this would be something I'm sure that he and other people and other family members of people, you know, dealing and living with Parkinson's would be uh, very interested in. So we'll uh, hopefully continue to check in with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your interest, Dan. Thanks so much. It is great. I'm, I'm happy that we're seeing some movement forward ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Nir Lipson, Lipsman rather, is a co-principal investigator and a neurosurgeon at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center where... They're looking at their their clinical trial of uh, Parkinson's treatment. It sounds very hopeful. As soon as I saw this story about the Scarborough Food Bank, which is aiming to restore dignity and respect to people that find themselves in a tough situation, especially during this pandemic, I said to Chris, please reach out to this gentleman. I, I need to talk to him. I want to find out how this food bank works because I think it's a great idea. I think it could be a great working model. There are a lot of people that are going to have to turn to food banks. A lot of people have turned to food banks in the pandemic that normally wouldn't. Most of us are just, our experience is supporting food banks, uh, giving what we can. But if you ever find yourself in a situation where you have to use a food bank, I'm sure it's a tough one to be in. There's a lot of stigma, uh, which is unfair, surrounding uh, having to use food banks and why you found yourself in this predicament. So um, we're joined now by Suman Roy, who is with Feed Scarborough. It's uh, an interesting food bank. Suman, I'm so happy that you had some time for us today. Can I just ask you, because I have never had to, luckily, um, turn to a food bank for help. I would if I needed to, um, but I'm lucky enough to be able to support food banks. How does a normal food bank operate and what does it look like when you go in to use it? So thanks. First of all, thanks for having me to have this very important conversation. Uh, Food banks, unfortunately, has a huge stigma attached and you understood and you you talk about that. In a regular food bank, generally, and especially with COVID and the restrictions, 
we get the food, we pack in bags and boxes based on how many people in the family. You come in, you register, you get a box and a bag, and you keep moving. The biggest you problem You get what you get? That, is that right, Suman? And this is what I tell my four-year-old. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is the reality of uh, food banks. But what it, what it does, and this is how we came up with this whole thought process, is we as community is telling people what they should eat. We are telling people what they should put on the table, and they are not making that. Uh, actually, it is not about them to make that decision, which kind of bothers me. Think about you walking into a grocery store, and the grocery store owner gives you a box and say, that's what you're eating this week. Bye-bye. Right. It, it, that, that's the whole ex- exact Exactly. Well, it yeah. negates the fact that, Suman, some of us have like real dietary needs that we have to adhere to or, or uh, you know, specialized diets. And that doesn't take any of that into consideration. It's sort of like, well, if you need this, sorry. Exactly. But also the cultural aspect of it, which is huge. Yeah. I, right. I, I immigrated here 18 years ago from India. I didn't even know what stuffing is back home. And here, if I come to a food bank, (laughs) hey, now I love stuffing, but this is a different story. (laughs) (laughs) But in the food bank, you get a box of stuffing. So if you are, and in Scarborough, we have a lot of BIPOC people of different culture and new immigrants. What do they do? Most of them can't be bothered to figure out what to do with it. They eventually waste their food Mm -hmm. and then have less food available to them throughout the week. Which is a huge problem. Yeah, it is a big problem, and I see that. We are living in one of the most multicultural uh, cities in the world. So how have you worked around this problem with uh, with your food bank, Feed Scarborough, which, by the way, is in a newly built condo tower. It's on the bottom level. Uh, it's vacant space. Yes, we were very lucky that the owners here let us do this here, and we are very thankful because not only about food bank, there is a huge stigma behind poverty in Toronto, in, in our country. Uh, for the last four months, five months, we are trying to rent a space, but landlords rather have their space vacant but give it to a poverty reduction program. In okay, many so- cases, as soon as they hear it's for a food bank, suddenly the space is not available anymore, though three months later I still see the sign for lease. That must be infuriating. So you found the right... Uh, person, you found the right fit, you're in there. Tell us how your food bank differs from other ones. So there is two things. The first thing is uh, we, ha- we have a grocery store model where the whole place looks like grocery store, everything in shelves. People can actually walk through, choose what they want, and they just take that. So that is not a very innovative concept. Daily Bread Food Bank has, uh, has motivated people, different food banks to do that concept. Not a whole lot of food banks are doing it, but at least uh, Daily Bread Food Bank came up with this concept, which is amazing. But the key factor, which is innovative for us, is we are taking it one step more. When a person walks into the door and registers, they get a prepaid card, and our version of uh, prepaid, I call it, because it only works in our food bank. So they have an allowance based on their family size. And then they go shopping, just like how you would do with your prepaid visa card, for example. You take and then you go out to the cash register, and the cashiers will actually ring you in and 
take your uh, and whatever money balance you have, you can use that balance to buy our food. I say buy within quotes because you're getting it free, but it is within the allowance. What it also does is we have seen that the beginning of the month, the food banks are not that busy because people have their checks and they need less food support. While when they go towards the third or the fourth week of the month, the need is a lot greater because they're running out of their money once they pay their rent or whatever that is. So this way, if they have extra money on week one or week two, they can carry forward to week three or week four when they really need more because it's, the, it's kind of a prepaid visa card. You don't use all the money. You just keep it on and it just keeps growing. Next week, you get so the same allowance. Right. There, there's not the waste that you were talking about earlier on. Exactly. There is no waste. And then the our guests at lines, they don't feel that they have to take because it's available. They know that they're not going to lose it. So they will take only what they need. It's such a great idea. And how 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 are people that are using the food banks reacting to this? Do you notice they're kind of holding their heads higher when they come into your food bank? Absolutely. It is the biggest thing that we are seeing is people love that choice. People, if and I say it very loosely, but if I choose that I want to feed my family a bag of chips, I should not be ashamed of that. That is my decision, my choice. And here they have that choice. Choice does matter. So I think people are really appreciating that piece. All right, Sumon, if people want to make a donation to your food bank, how do they do that? Feedscarborough.ca. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope uh, other other food banks uh, catch on to your model of, of having the cashiers and the kind of debit cards that you hand out at the start of uh, someone's visit. I think it's a it's a great idea and it does take the shame out of food banks. Exactly. And that is our only hope that we can motivate others. Have a great day, Simon. Thanks so much Thank for joining so us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the chat. Have a great day. Bye. Cheers. Well, that's it for the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have some time between 9 and noon, we broadcast live daily on 640toronto.com.